You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for August 29th, 2021, the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Elizabeth Garnsey. It's based on Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, and Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, 14 through 15, and 21 through 23. Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the love between Christ and his church, to sing and pray, to remember Jesus in the breaking of the bread, and to be sent out to live a deeper life in Christ, a more holy union with one another, and a greater love for the world. Therefore, our gathering is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. Sounds strangely familiar? I begin the sermon this way today, stealing heavily from the opening words of our marriage liturgy, because next to the Apostle Paul's famous passage about love in Corinthians, this morning's reading from Song of Solomon is probably the second most popular scripture reading used at weddings. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away, for now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs as it is sometimes known, is a masterpiece of ancient love poetry. In the Wall Street Journal's masterpiece section of the book review a few years ago, the writer Eliora Katz wrote an essay about the Song of Solomon and asked, How could a literary work of female fancy, lacking any explicit mention of God, find its way into the Bible? She cites the first century sage Akiva for an obvious answer when he said, If all the Bible's songs are holy, the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. The maiden might represent the house of Israel longing for God, or according to the medieval rabbi Maimonides, She stands for us mortals who pine for the celestial. Christian church fathers and mystics said the book's true message is not the glorification of sexuality, but the spiritual love of Christ for the church and of the individual's longing for union with God. There are as many interpretations as there are interpreters of this beautiful book of Holy Scripture or of love poetry or allegory or metaphor Call it what you will. Some attribute the authorship to King Solomon, while others suggest the song is not by King Solomon, but about him and and possibly about his marriage to the Queen of Sheba. Others say, more irreverently, that King Solomon, who was famous for his hundreds of wives and concubines, probably spoke this way to all the girls. But that's a point for another conversation. The essayist and translator Kenneth Rexroth wrote wrote that for most modern people in our secular society, Song of Solomon is one of the easiest books to appreciate in the Bible because it is not what one thinks of as religious. Whereas some of the most spiritually oriented religious people, from the Talmudists to Orthodox rabbis, from the church fathers to the medieval mystics, have regarded the Song of Solomon as central to the meaning of religion. Rexroth says these opposing judgments can only mean that most modern people in our predatory, thing-based society 
have no idea what religion is. So what is religion anyway? Or to echo our collect of the day, what is true religion? The second century Roman theologian Tertullian wrote that people looked jealously upon the early church, saying, look at those Christians, see how they love one another. But over the centuries, by way of our many divisions and scandals, Christianity has lost some credibility in the world. Walls of exclusion and judgment have fractured Christian unity, making our love for one another all too often hard to find. But the word itself, religion, comes from the root ligare, or ligio, from which we also get the word ligament. So religion means to rebind or reconnect. True religion connects people to God, and in so doing, connects us with one another and with all that comes from God, namely with the entire created order, so that we can make the world a better place by letting God bear good fruit in our lives. Again, from our opening collect, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruits of good works. Religion goes astray when it divides and disconnects us from one another, from God and from nature. And sometimes we don't even notice when these disconnects are happening. We can get so preoccupied with the rules and trappings and tribalism of our various religious institutions. And it has always been thus. Just consider the gospel reading from Mark today. The Pharisees are so upset with Jesus for letting his disciples eat without washing their hands, they come all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee to tell him so. The inclusion of a parenthetical explanation in the passage makes it plain that in fact not all Jews were probably observing hand-washing. Interestingly, it was the human tradition of the elders and not a direct order from God. Jesus pushes back at them, saying that corruption or defilement arises from within a person's own heart. No amount of hand-washing can purify a soul set on wrongdoing. Just ask Lady Macbeth. True religion is, what, is that which connects one human heart to one another, and to nature and to God. You know we're overemphasizing rules and rituals when they begin to create division and separation and a false sense of confidence that God is on our side and against those who don't share our worldview. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah to his accusers, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If religion is a practice of binding us one to another and all of us to God and to nature, then it's no wonder the mystics read the Song of Solomon as a text charged with religious significance. What is more connecting, more intimately binding than the passion between two lovers? Something that is so special about this text and its place in the larger context of the Bible is that it gives such significant voice to the woman's desire and pleasure, whereas elsewhere in the Bible, references to sex or procreation most often cast the woman in a position that is powerless, voiceless, and acted upon. But here, she is equal in the love exchange. She shares in the fullness of pleasure with her lover, and she has full agency to initiate the invitation to love and to be loved. 
If this text is to serve as an allegory or a metaphor for our relationship to the divine, it isn't hard to imagine the myriad ways in which our religious practices might be enlivened by it. The Song of Solomon conveys the singular passion between lovers, the joy each one takes in the other's joy, the desire each one has for the other's delight and well-being. What better way to imagine the highest ideals of a church community? We are happy and healthy indeed when we take joy in one another's joy and delight in one another's delight and well-being. And when we love one another with the passion that fuels the universe, all with God's help. And we are not an exclusive club. The church does not exist for ourselves alone. We exist in order to bring the love of God out from here, out into the world, from our loving community from which we are sent, having been gathered together and taught and nourished. In all of our major sacraments, at baptism, at Holy Eucharist, at weddings, we gather with friends and families to celebrate, to witness, to bless new birth and great love. We gather together because these sacraments are meant to be shared. Sacraments point us beyond ourselves to a life that is interconnected and joined to others. They give us a concrete means to express outwardly the mysterious transformations that begin inwardly. Even something as intimate as a marriage is not merely for the couple alone, but ultimately for the common good. It is a relationship entered into as a commitment to unconditional love. And when a couple grows in this way of love, it pours out of them in other ways, into their families and their wider communities. How to make love endure? Love other things together, Anthony DeMillo wrote about marriage. Similarly, baptism is not for the individual alone, but it is full initiation into the body of Christ. And although we have been doing smaller family baptisms during the pandemic, baptism is most appropriately done in the context of the wider community. Today, Peter will baptize Wyatt Smith, grandson of Amy Reed and son of Alexa and Colin Smith. When they gather outside today, Wyatt will have godparents and parents and grandparents present. And we too will be present in spirit, having prayed for him this morning at this service. The promises we make in baptism, and every time we renew our own baptismal covenant, we begin with the promise of communal gathering, breaking bread, and praying together. But the promises we make quickly expand outward, as we promise to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And then they expand even further when we promise to strive for justice and peace, respecting the dignity of every human being. Our baptismal covenant connects us to every human being. This is true religion. And it is a far cry from individualistic spirituality. This kind of interconnecting religion calls for God's help at every turn, as it calls for great love. And great love calls for great courage, persistence, and maturity. And it calls for the support and companionship of one another. We simply cannot practice true religion alone. God has gathered us together in love. Arise, my loves, my fair ones 
and come away. Come away from all that divides us and all that keeps us from the great love God has for us to give and to receive. For what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.